rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. This is Bob Hutchins, and today on the phone, we're going to take some trips down memory lane for some of you. For many of you, this will be a brand new introduction of my guests. On the phone with me today, I have Don Francisco and Wendy Francisco, a husband and wife team, Don and Wendy as well. I have been involved in the contemporary Christian music uh, industry. Don himself for, gosh, over 45 years. He's released 20 albums. Many of you may know the name. Don Francisco, back in the day, um, was pretty popular, had a lot of radio play, toured around the country, did concerts, and we'll get into some of that. Wendy Francisco was part of a, a group called Wendy and Mary, and uh, together uh, we're Don and Wendy, welcome to the show, first of all, but I forgot to ask, where where do you live now? Where are you calling from? Uh, we live in Colorado. Oh, fantastic. Welcome to Rumors of Grace, and I'm excited to hear your story, your journey, because uh, it, it's, it's fascinating and very interesting to me. So before we begin, I, I just want you guys to, to kind of either Don or Wendy... Uh, talk to us a little bit about your history of um, how you got into music, what was your upbringing. Um, let's talk a little bit about the early days, uh, because I know you guys have been married for about what, about 25 years? Almost 24. Two days. Uh, in two days, it'll be 24 years. Oh, okay. Well, Don, how about you? Talk, talk to me a little bit about your music career and where, where that started. Well, I, I think it's it's interesting that we're going to, uh, but the goal of, I guess, our conversation here today is to talk about theology. Yep. Uh, one of the things I first experienced uh, is that uh, most churches don't want musicians to talk about theology. Mm. Uh, and so it's, uh, uh, the, the reason I brought that up was, was because, uh, I was born into a theological family mm. and, uh, I, I've always found it really frustrating that, uh, most of our present church structure doesn't look as music at musicians as having any kind of, uh, intelligence or aptitude in those areas. <laughs> but, uh, I could uh, I could say the Hebrew alphabet before I was three. I can't do it now because I can't <laughs> use it. But uh, my my dad was the head of the Old Testament department at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, okay. and I was raised practically on the campus, interacting with with all the the people from from students up to up through the uh, executives. And and learned uh, learned learned a lot about the way uh, uh, evangelical Protestantism works mm. during that time, and then uh, at, well the result of that was uh, uh, <laughs> I started running the other way just as fast as I could go, uh, and to, just to give you an idea, I got my first guitar in a blackjack game when I was supposed to be in Sunday school when I was 14 <laughs> years old. Uh, and cause I, I really wanted to, to play rock and roll. That was all I really wanted to do, but I couldn't afford an electric guitar. So I wound up learning on acoustic and it, it, it kind of, kind of stuck with me. It, it's, it's really hard to rock and roll with an acoustic guitar. So that, that kind of changed my direction, but, uh, I went through a lot of changes during during the 60s uh, you know the whole sex drugs rock and roll thing and uh, got into eastern meditation and yoga seriously conscientiously I, I did my yoga exercises twice a day and meditated and was a vegetarian that back then since I didn't cook very well it meant eating a lot of uh, meals at Taco Bell <laughs> but uh, lots of bean burritos. Then one, one morning, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. 
I still eat them. But uh, one morning during my meditation time, when I was 28 years old, that was in, in August of uh, 1974, uh, God spoke to me so clearly. I thought somebody was in the room. It was I. I, I it was. I, nothing like that had, had, had ever happened to me. And it, uh, I've had some spiritual experiences before that, but nothing with this clear voice like mm-hmm. that. It was just, it was, uh, what he said was, Don, this is Jesus. I love you. Why are you running from me? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, he spoke the words he showed me inside who he really is. That's the only way I know how to describe it is, is this just, it was, and it, it, it just shattered my religious image that I was raised with. I had this picture of God as this angry old man up on the throne with, with this big spiritual bullwhip, you know, just kind of a get back in line, all you dirty rotten sinners. Right. But when Jesus spoke to me that day, I was into all kinds of stuff. I won't give you a list, but I'd have been arrested for a lot of it. Uh, and he didn't—he didn't mention anything I was doing wrong. It was like it didn't exist as far as he was concerned. He just said, "I love you. Why are you running from me?" Hmm. And the revelation that I got that day uh, was was so powerful and and so deep that it well it it gave me direction for the music I was writing because I was after having traveled around with my dad all those years you know he was a preacher traveled around and went to all these churches and everything I'd known all these Christians all my life and I knew they didn't know the God that I'd just met Mm. and I wanted to tell them about him and that's why I started writing and that's why I got into the started writing Christian music and why I got into the Christian music business. <laughs> That's the long version to you. Yeah, was that 19 question. around the mid 70s is that is that when you really started going into that full time? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I okay. think uh he's alive was was in uh, 76. Okay. Okay. That's awesome. And was that your quote biggest hit? He's alive. I think that's why a lot of people who may have been around that time and in in the church Remember that song by Don Francisco, He's Alive. Would you say that that was your big hit? That would definitely be my biggest Okay. (laughs) That's awesome. Now, Wendy, what about you? What was your upbringing? Was it similar or different? And and, and then you got into music, correct? Yeah. um, Well, I guess um, I was introduced into campus life in 1973 Mm -hmm. and, you know, quote, asked Jesus into my heart, unquote. And um, I just, uh, I had grown up working in uh, camps as a wrangler. (laughs) And and so I just started working in Christian camps. Mm -hmm. And um, I met met my friend Mary, and we started singing for campfires. Mm -hmm. I don't really know exactly how it happened. Mm -hmm. We just, we just started having people ask us, to sing mm. and so we thought we better write some songs <laughs> and it's it's terrible because I have had so many people ask how to get into Christian music and I could never answer them just go to a stable and start shoveling horse poop I guess I don't know <laughs> and, and so we started singing and more, more and more people asked us and it, it was honestly truly a wonderful um way for a kid to to grow up and and mary and i were young and we we spent our weekends providing music for these ski trips of christian youth groups and (laughs) we just went all over the place in california and finally uh, signed with sparrow records and and traveled around the country and oh they were just good years that's that's amazing. So you guys were involved in the um, the whole Christian culture subculture in its heyday. You know, going from the mid seventies to the eighties and 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 beyond. But um, I, I bet you 
between the two of you saw a lot of stuff, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, as you toured around the country and the world, singing in churches and in auditoriums and things like that. Don, do you have fond memories of that time? Was it a mix of good and bad? Can talk to me a little bit about what that experience was like as far as your memory. Oh, goodness. Uh, well, first of all, Wendy's, uh, what, what she said about what she at least wants to say to people that want to get into Christian music is, to, you know, like to, to start by going to a stable and shelling poop. Well, that's, that might be a good idea because it's only going to get deeper. <laughs> <laughs> mm. I've heard that. But no, um, yeah. Uh, I had a different perspective on things because when, when God spoke to me that, that day, I was uh, the leader of a rock and roll band living in Atlanta, Georgia. And most of the, the whole Jesus people thing that was happening was out on the West Coast. And so I missed a lot of stuff that was happening out there, and I really don't know what to say about it. Mm. Uh, it I was kind of just isolated because of, you know, it was the, the South was just pretty much, you know, locked into uh, the denominational thing and the the uh, Jesus movement didn't really hit it quite that hard. Mm. So you were, but you were in, uh, I seem to remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, is like you got, you kind of got lumped into the whole Jesus music, um, you know, Larry Norman and and Randy Stonehill, and and then there was Don Francisco. Would you, would you say you weren't really part of that or you kind of were? Well, I wasn't because I, I didn't even know those guys. I mean, uh, I, I, I ran into, uh, Jim, uh, once or twice at concerts or, or festivals or, but you know, that doesn't really count really. Right. Just, oh, that's what it looked like. You know, it's kind of all, all it, it was more of a time period, uh, same time period, same genre. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, I remember, uh, getting to, uh, open up for, uh, for Andre Crouch once and man, I, that was that was a huge privilege. That was just wonderful. Mm. But I didn't I didn't uh, have a chance to to hang out with with any of the people. What, that's one of the bad things about the uh, music business is unless you live in a city where everybody else lives, which I didn't, you never see other people on the road because if you happen to be in the same town at the same time, you're doing concerts and you can't get together. Mm. Mm. So I was, you know, I was just kind of rattling around, and uh, you know, I I got picked up uh, by by Bill Gaither. He got really interested in in me, and I want to credit him with with giving me a real leg up because if it wasn't for him, I mean, he invited me to do a little special spot in his concerts, and back then he was averaging around ten thousand people a night. And getting me up in front of that many people, I mean, my goodness, mm. it was terrifying. <laughs> sure, and he's st- and he's still at it, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, and I've met a lot of people in the Christian music business, a lot of Nashville people, and Bill is one of the few people that I still have a great deal of respect for. He's just a man of character. There was there was one there was one real watershed experience that I had with him while while I was. Uh, on the road, uh, we did a, a, a concert in uh, Fort Worth at the, well, I forget the name of the place, big, humongous place. I don't know, 15,000 people or something were there. And Bill broke down and cried because he just spent, oh, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars on a brand new PA system that he had to fly. He, he flew in a jet while the PA system was in two tractor trailer rigs on the road. And, and he was crying backstage just in a mess because he couldn't keep time with the band because of a slap back off the wall. Mm. I just looked around at all the stuff and all the stress and all, all the stuff that was going on. And I just made a decision, you know, I don't think I want to go this way. Mm. 
And that was a point at which I kind of unplugged and just, uh, at, at least in my head. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about, I'd love to hear from each one of you. Um, you're kind of growing up in this evangelical subculture and you see a lot of things, you experience a lot of things. And you started this conversation off, Don, with talking about theology and musicians and what, what was your basis for your theology? And I know that it evolved and it's changed and it's, I'm assuming still changing. Um, Talk to me about that journey for you as someone who was in the spotlight, who was someone who kind of made a living off of the evangelical culture. What began to change for you? And I want to hear the same thing from for you from you, Wendy. Is that something that you did together as a married couple? Did it happen before? Did you do did that happen individually? Talk to me about how that began to evolve and grow and change from, say, what you were brought up in and what you experienced in those early years years of your of your music ministry. Oh my goodness, uh, things that uh, I really had to deal with uh, emotionally and intellectually. What uh, that was a hard thing for me was. Uh, as soon as just a couple of days after I had that uh, revelation where, where God spoke to me so clearly, <laughs> I got involved with this cult. It was awful. I, it, was, uh, it was back in the, I don't know if you recall the days of the shepherding discipleship movement, all y- that. Yes. That's kind of what it was called. I got involved in one of those groups. And of course, when you're first involved, you don't really pick up all of the, the, you know, the theological details and stuff. You just, I was just kind of fascinated by the fact that there were so many excited people in it and that for the first time in my life, I was seeing miracles. Mm. So that was, that was the first thing that I had to learn to deal with is uh, after a while, I realized that it was a place with just absolutely sick theology that was teaching people that if you disobeyed an elder, you were disobeying God. Mm. And uh, at the same time, seeing such really bad theology, but at the same time, seeing God move in people's lives. It was one of those uh, things that w- at first was a real disconnect, but after a while I realized that God acts because he loves us, not because we have our theology right. Mm. And so what 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 did that look like for you? Was that uh, certainly uh, a readjustment of, of, of your understanding of the divine and God? Was it a confirmation of what you already knew? I, I know in that environment, that, quote, shepherding, uh, environment for those people who are listening who aren't familiar with it, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was a very kind of harsh. Uh, you submit to the authorities of the leaders or the quote shepherds of um, this invi- church uh, or denomination or whatever you want to call it movement, and all will go well for you. And this is what God wants for you. And you don't um, when you don't. And that, and it gets down to very, uh, like detailed. Like you don't even make a decision of who you're going to date or not date, where you're going to move, what job you're going to take. Everything has to go by the elders. Is that is that kind of how it was? That's exactly how it was, man. You nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> so in that very uh, almost dare I say cult like environment, um, I'm assuming at some point you begin to break free of that. Correct. Yeah, uh, at uh, at about after I'd been there for about nine months, uh, <laughs> I was last talking. On, I, I was talking on the phone with my dad, and I realized I had this sudden realization that he was talking to me like someone would be talking to a crazy person. Mm. <laughs> really, I mean, I picked up 
that my own dad was was talking very very carefully <laughs> and saying things that were were being phrased just exactly right and i suddenly saw myself you know being handled this way from that end and being handled the other way from the cult i was in and realized oh my god these people are out of their minds i got to get out of here <laughs> and so i did uh, I I told them that night that I just felt like I had spent enough time there and I just was going to leave. And they uh, were, every single person uh, in this community was ordered that night not to speak to me again. Wow. Under any conditions. So I was shunned for the next two weeks because I had to quit the job I had. You know? and, and I where, gave them two weeks notice. And where did you go after that? I went to Nashville to pursue my uh, what I felt was what I was supposed to do to, to try to tell people about the Jesus that I'd met that morning uh, while I was meditating. And, and what about you, Wendy? What was your experience growing up uh, in that kind of evangelical subculture and, and enjoying that? And, you know, you were young and singing and was there any at, at what point did your journey or understanding or evolution of faith finally take a little bit of a turn? I think before I answer that question, I just had a thought while Don was talking about the uh, the cultish situation that he was in. That um, I think the shepherding movement has a very important <laughs> message, and like you don't want to make the mistake of of putting of putting those experiences into a cult box and dismissing them. My, from what I see, um, that, you know, that kind of authoritarianism is everywhere in everywhere. And, and so you, you know, when you, you asked me how, you know, what brought about kind of the need for change? Uh, oh my gosh. I mean, that that sort of authoritarianism is always going to be cultish, no matter where it is, you know, sure. and, and any place that has any kind of a spiritual hierarchy, you know, is is going to wind up being destructive, and and um, and I think it's it's not a bad thing to to kind of I don't know what the word would be um, the sensationalize the word cult, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and figure out exactly what, what makes the cult, you know, and, 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 and take some serious time to try to figure out if you're in one, you know, and, or maybe if you don't want to go so far as to say, Oh, you know, this group is a cult or whatever, at least, at least figure out what, what it means to be in a situation that's cult ish, <laughs> You know, and and it can it can help us to to not box things too fast. And and I think in, in answer to your question, um, I I had a lot of enthusiasm when when I was a kid because um, when I quote accepted Jesus, and I mean I joke about that now. I call it when I accepted evangelicalism, right. <laughs> but. Um, but truthfully, I really did meet Jesus at that moment, and it was a life-changing experience. And just like John, uh, what tends to happen is, you know, you you meet you you make this very authentic, astonishing, and compelling spiritual connection. But the only way you have to frame it, you know, is <laughs> is whatever you know, religious framework is around you. And it must be just really hard for Jesus <laughs> to finally get the message through, you know, about who he actually is. And, and, and that's why it can be difficult to talk about this. Just a lot of people, when they go through what we're now calling deconstruction, just take the whole thing and reframe it into a place of blame and negativity. And I can't really do that because my experience traveling around the world with Mary and then later around the world with Don is I just, you know, I have had, I've probably seen every, almost every miracle, if not every miracle that happened in the Bible. I've seen 
people wake up after being prayed for after they were dead. <laughs> I've seen crippled bones literally straighten out in front of my eyes after prayer. I've seen so many amazing changes and, and you know, so many things that um, I'm an avid science reader. I love to read popular physics. My dad went to Harvard. He was, he worked for the company that designed the personal computer. Um, he, so a lot of science in my life. And I've seen a lot of things that I just know science couldn't explain. <laughs> sure. and, and I really love science. and I love this too. So I, I don't really want to, you know, I, I understand how some people could sweep the whole thing under the rug as a matter of survival. Because honestly, I don't think you can you can get through all of life very easily thinking that Jesus was the man who paid you off to mm. retribute of God, so right. God could stand you. Right. Honestly, as long as we have that framework, right, we cannot grow. Well, talk, talk to me a little bit. Going to become toxic. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that because, um, you know, we're going to go into some deep water here. But when you talk about penal substitutionary atonement, uh, theological term that most evangelicals in America hold to as gospel truth, and their whole foundation and framework is built on it. But you also start to dig deep right. deep into that. It's basically what did Jesus do on the cross? What did he accomplish? Right. So you talk to the average right. average American evangelical, and he would say, well, he paid the debt for your sin because you were born sinful, because of Adam you fell, and you deserved hell, but Jesus took it for us on the cross, and he paid the price for you so that you could then you know, enter into a relationship with God, both here and in the hereafter, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, right? So that that's kind of a... I know I didn't go into that in depth, but that's a high-level understanding of penal substitutionary atonement. Um, talk to me a little bit about that retributory, uh, punitive uh, kind of theology, and what what was the cracking point for you to unravel that and to say, hey, maybe there's another way to look at this? Well, I I, I guess I'll revert to story mode because I mean, you asked earlier about um, John and I and our our journey through this together. The going through this as a couple for us. It's been amazing and wonderful. And I feel so bad that some some people are so indoctrinated into um, the retributive model of God and penal substitution theory and all that, that if they dare to make a move toward, as you described it, some of these other um, models of the cross, they can lose their marriage. <laughs> you can lose your job. You can lose your church. You can lose your family. And uh, as I was saying earlier, before we started, um, those are the stories that I hear on Love Heretic, which is my social media group for um, people just kind of challenging that Western Christendom model mm -hmm. of the retributive God. But Don and I did this together, and we each helped each other a lot because Don is a lot more educated than I am in church history. And um, so I'm going to let him answer for himself. But for me, um, not too long after we were married, I decided that I was not going to depend on any other human um, to tell me how to live according to what they thought this book meant. And look, call me crazy. I think like 999 out of 1,000 Christians has not done this. Mm. And they're, they're literally thinking that they live according to the Bible, but really they're just living according to what one person who may or may not belong to one of tens of thousands of denominations on this planet is telling them that a book says, right. You know? And so I, I was something like 41 or 42 and I did something I've never done before. I and, because, and my motivation was, I have just so had it being a woman in this <laughs> religion because I'm a scumbag and I like I don't fit any of these feminine models and 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 everything that I feel like I am inside. I'm an artist. I'm a musician. I'm I'm terrible at housekeeping. I make a 
terrible Christian because I'm I'm not good at domestic things and and I I just can't be right. <laughs> so my motivation was being a woman, mm. you know, having come up through where I came up through. So I put a bunch of study books around me, like Strong's Concordance, you know, and some and Young's and some, you know, and some Greek literal books. And I just focused. And actually, I did this because I felt like like God had told me, you need to open up some of these books and look at every single verse in the New Testament that has anything to do with the woman. And so I did that. And at the end of two or three days, I was so shocked <laughs> at the difference between what I was reading in the Greek literal study guides versus our modern translations that I actually took a Bible and threw it across the room and, and it, all came down like a huge stack of cards and I told myself, you know, if they can do this to to wound half of humanity based on gender and obscure who we really are in God, then it would be, you know, it's not it's no stretch <laughs> to imagine that that uh, there's no hell either and that they've done it to the whole human race and it it just it just came down, and I went to Don, and I said, "Hey, Don, <laughs> this is what I literally said." I said, "You know what? If I'm wrong, and I'm actually supposed to be your love slave, <laughs> like I'm down for that, but I think <laughs> we're supposed to just be two friends that are equal in a marriage, and that we should consider throwing off the evangelical um, hierarchical um, structure for our marriage." And we talked about it for a while, and his his reaction was, man, I'm, I love the way this feels. I get to be your friend and I don't have to be your God. Mm. Wow. Wow. So Don, what was your response in that? (laughs) Just just like she said, Mm. it was such a relief Mm. to, to realize that, that we could, I mean, that I was going to have responsibility for my life. (laughs) <laughs> and she was going to have responsibility for hers. What a concept. Yeah. Yes. You know, but I've, I've been at, at the bottom now of this was stuff that I've been struggling with for years uh, that I think is, is, is at the crux of how anyone is going to look at Christianity. Uh, as long as you look, at the Bible as something that's to be literally interpreted as the word of God, you're going to be crazy. Yes. You're going to go nuts because you can't do it. It's, it's impossible. And it was never intended to be that way. Now I've already told you that I, you know, was, was raised with this stuff to the extent that, uh, when my dad, who, uh, did a lot of postgraduate work here, there and, and, and on, uh, he didn't run into this in the Baptist schools at the time, but he ran into something called higher criticism. And when I started understanding what that was all about, as a child, I reacted against it mm. and thought, oh, well, this, this isn't right. Actually, teenage child, but still, you, you know, you might think you have a brain when you're a teenager, but that's <laughs> only partly true. And I was, uh, you know, and so I, I, in spite of the fact that I was rebelling against all of it, I still had this this deep conviction that uh, the Bible was not supposed to be messed with that way. You weren't supposed to separate the sources. Man, Moses wrote this because it says he did. Right. You know, and and so when I had my uh, uh, experience at age twenty-eight. Uh, I began, I approached my newfound Bible study with that uh, fundamentalist outlook. I had, I bought it and I started reading the Bible that way. Uh, And, you know, I can say since it's me that I got crazier and crazier, Uh, but it all kind of came to a halt one day when, I was doing some concerts in the south of England, and I went to hear a Bible teacher, 
And uh, he was teaching out of John uh, chapter 15, I think it is, where uh, Jesus says, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, and then the next uh, verse, I think, is uh, uh, any branch that is, uh, but anyway, uh, he was teaching that the translation is just plain wrong. Mm. And I got so offended that I almost left the room. Wow. That, that because I was just so sure that, that, that this was right, that when, when, uh, Jesus said that, uh, if you, uh, uh, do, oh, if, if you don't produce fruit, you will be, uh, Cut off and thrown into the fire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. I was just, just kind of shorting out here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, the uh, I stayed long enough to listen to him, and and I realized he was right, especially after I went and checked it up, checked it out for myself. That uh, if you, <laughs> that's not at all what the verse says. Uh, the word means to cleanse. Mm. And it's the word following that that is translated, he will take that away, uh, can much better be translated as lift up. Mm. And if you know anything about uh, viticulture, and I, I studied it after that, you find out that in order for a grapevine to produce a decent amount of grapes, it has to have the it, its leaves can't be covered because they can't photosynthesize. I mean that's not <laughs> rocket science to us these days. But and back then, especially in that arid culture where they were where they they grew grapes, they had to actually wash the leaves during the season because it wouldn't rain and they'd get covered with dust. And so you've you've got a p- picture of of God washing the leaves, not pruning, because you don't never you never prune a grapevine until the season is over, mm. and it's all done. Uh, if a grapevine falls down into the dirt, it doesn't produce, and so you lift it up and put it back on the trellis, mm. and that's what the whole story is right there. Mm. And I had my first glimpse into what a horrible job of translation what we were reading really is and I began to study that and to see what had happened when when uh, Jerome uh, took things from Greek in into Latin he was he was a scholar but he wasn't all that great mm. he, he didn't do a lot of stuff very well and unfortunately translations are like legal precedent once they've been used for a while, people accept them as fact, that that's just how it is, and that's just, don't even go there. And we used Jerome's translation in the Western world for a thousand years before people started really making new ones and trying to get back into what was said. Mm. So anyhow, I've, I've gotten talking a whole lot more than I want. No, that's good. Probably all the That's good. <laughs> I mean, for but, uh, let, me just, let me just close it here by... By, by saying, I love reading the Bible, but it's hard for me these days. It's so hard because I've read it long enough to begin to see how many levels there are mm. between us, what we're reading today, and the culture, and what was actually being heard and said back before it was actually written down. We don't have any Gospels before about 30 or 40 years after Jesus died. Nothing was written down. Can you imagine how things change in people's heads in 30 or 40 years? Especially yeah. with the, the insane cultures and the, the persecutions and stuff that were, that were going on. It's, you know, I, we have a really good friend that's a, a powerful intellect and a theologian and I'm, I'm going on his word when I say this, but 
he said that both he and most of the other theologians he's in contact with would agree that there are only about 10 sayings in all four of the Gospels that scholars are really certain that Jesus actually said. Wow. And I understand, too, from my limited... Yeah, I understand, too, from my limited studies, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you know these Gospels were written down and recorded 30 or 40 years later as these men were older, but we don't have any any original writings. They don't exist. And the ones that we do have, the oldest ones that were closest to those men who wrote them down 30 or 40 years after they happened, were copied down by rote and by memory, and those are a couple of hundred years after those men died. So the closest thing we have to anything that's original, quote, was at least 150 to 200 years, you know, after Christ or after these men died, these disciples. So uh, can you imagine if, you know, we're we're banking on something, um, you know, that happened in the 17, 1800s and all of a sudden, you know, uh, you and I decided, hey, uh, I heard this that so and that George Washington said this, and um, there's some documents that were recorded. Yeah, let's write it down. Let's write it down. And then all of a sudden, someone takes that as the absolute truth words of George Washington. That's kind of what we have with the Gospels. And I'm not being super negative about it. All I'm saying is if you talk to any biblical scholars, there are no original documents. So we're basically saying these are handed down. Let's set aside the English translations. That's a whole nother can of worms. Um, it, it's really hard for us to, like you said, to read that uh, and try to put it in the, into a 2019 context without really wrestling with the culture, the time period, the location, you know, the reliability of it, all those things. W- would you agree? I would definitely agree. And I would just want to add something from, oh, shock and gasp, another religion, although it's kind of a non-religion. Have you ever done any uh, readings in uh, Taoism? Yes, a little bit. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, one of, one of the uh, sayings is that... Even the words of the ancient masters, when you read them, they're only the dust that they left behind. Mm. Wow, that's good. In other words, what the people really knew in their deep spirits, in their connection with their maker, could could never be put down on paper. Mm. I think that's one of the reasons why, at least in in ancient cultures, there was real discipleship, mm. where you kind of lived with and and got to know someone on a deep level. Because it's not head knowledge; you can't just read it and get it. And that's one of the things that will really make you crazy trying to do that. Because our religious system wants you to get it all in your head. Mm. Yeah, and it, and it's interesting that this. I'm sorry, think, Wendy. Go ahead. I think that yeah, I, I think that um, it probably does bear saying though that uh, the method of transmission through the ages of the Old Testament is different and um, probably a bit more reliable. Mm-hmm. Uh, than the New Testament. Correct. There's there's kind of an ease or almost a laziness in that. Right. But there's also kind of a laziness and an ease in saying that the Bible isn't valid. I mean, uh, we've had a, a lot of people, um, you know, kind, kind of react and say, well, if you don't believe that the Bible is um, literal and inerrant, then you're trashing it. <laughs> no. But um, really, the, the Bible does. Scripture is, is amazing, and um, and it's it, you know uh, a a lot of I think what we think about it has to do with our, our own journeys. Like mm, um, that's good. Like for a while, okay, I was an inerrantist, and the Bible had 
had inerrant magic about it. <laughs> and then, for, then during deconstruction, I did go through kind of a loss, kind of a phase. It's very disorienting getting up because you know your 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 brain when you're indoctrinated, your your brain is structured around these things. So I guess it's kind of expected that when you start to challenge some of these things. Uh, you can kind of feel like you got hit in the head by a baseball bat. Yeah. <laughs> and you can feel disoriented, you know. But then it's almost like if you can get infallibility out of the way, and then if you can get past that that period of time, well, if it isn't infallible, it must be worthless. And, you, you know, you can get past that too. I think that's when Scripture starts opening up on the level it's supposed to, you know. And here we've got this amazing um book that goes back thousands of years it's really not not too hard to dig out i mean we we talk about how horribly it's translated and actually there is a lot of good oh, absolutely. Uh, scholarship behind our translations it's, it's more it's more how, what our our pulpit teachings and modern versions do to the translations that that's why you know, I could go into Greek books and whatever and get a whole different message because of how much scholarship there are behind the translations. But, to, you know, just to read it at face value, it's, it, it, when there is the Bible, I, I had, there was one theologian that, that said this sentence that helped me so much. He said, from cover to cover, Bible's an argument on whether God is retributive or not. Mm. It is, it is. The tension between essentially a pagan god that needs blood sacrifice and a god of grace who doesn't. That's right. And when you when you see it that way, it's it just helps so much uh, in this question that that we're all asking. And and when it comes down to the cross, you know you you can either see it as Jesus demonstrating that even if we murder him, he doesn't retaliate. Yep. Or you can fit him into that Hebrew system of of him being the, you know, the the retributive sacrifice. And you you mentioned a scripture in passing that really highlights what's being done here. You said, you know, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins, and that is exactly how. Evangelicals quote that because evangelicals are famous uh, for backing their own theology, even if it means cutting a sentence in half. Mm -hmm. But the truth of the matter is, it isn't what it says. It says, according to the law. That's right. There is no remission of sins without the shedding of blood. And then it goes on to talk about a more excellent way. And it's, it's just as plain as can be. God doesn't remember sin. Love doesn't keep an account. God mm -hmm. doesn't desire sacrifice. And this this model of inclusion and and grace and that looking at the cross as if it's a demonstration of love, as the Apostle Paul thought, and not as it's not as the ultimate Jewish slash pagan sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah. At the core, that's all it is. And if, if those few dominoes fall you are not going to end up being able to be an evangelical any longer. And you will, you know, you'll, <laughs> you'll start that journey and you will, you'll start to wonder if it was really Jesus you accepted in your heart or John Calvin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would say, I would say, um, Augustine, John Calvin and Martin Luther probably is what many, many people trust their interpretations more than anything else, even if they don't realize it, uh, exactly. be because they were so yeah. influential, and like you mentioned, Jerome and others. But these early church fathers who, uh, uh, you know, admittedly wrestled, uh, but, but came to the table with their own issues and their own glasses and their own experiences and created creeds and doctrines that were adopted— um, that may not necessarily be really close or truth to what true what what was going on there in the scripture, but I but I will echo what you said, Wendy, and that's a good reminder that um, 
you know, there is huge value and there's huge wisdom and there's, you know, the, the scriptures is a beautiful thing. Um, another way I heard someone explain it is uh, don't read scriptures literally, read it literally, literarily, like you're reading a piece of literature. Um, and yeah, and so liter- a liter- literarily is, you know, you're reading a poem, you're reading a, a, a myth that has universal wisdom in it. You're reading um, a, a, a story that was passed down that means something uh, to certain people in certain situations. Yeah. And then you begin to find universal truths about humans, about God, about life, about love, um, rather than the most elementary way of reading something, which is just you know, the words on the page and you take them for face value. We don't do that with many things in our life, but yet for some reason we want to take things literally and say, well, this book, uh, this Old Testament uh, story about a guy getting swallowed by the whale, uh, somehow that really, really happened. Instead of saying, what's the metaphor here? What's the what's the story of maybe yeah. maybe Jonah... Maybe it means the thing that we fear most um, will come up and swallow us. We think we're going to die, but then we come through it uh, and we're spit out, transformed after this this journey. Um, you know, maybe there's deeper things. Or maybe. Yep. Maybe we look at that and say, hey, at the bottom of his heart, Jonah didn't want Nineveh to meet the real God because he was angry with them. That's and right. I don't know a better a better identifier for how Christianity is functioning right now. We don't, we don't function like we love humanity. We function like we want them to go to hell. We're using them as scapegoats and blaming them. Just what Jonah did. He's like, I'm not going to go there and preach that actual loving God to these people. I can't stand them. (laughs) You know, and that's, yeah, you miss all that. If you say, well, I wonder if it's possible for somebody to be swallowed by a whale. Well, (laughs) it's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, true, it's, that, it's interesting. There's so many so nuances. Many yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, what does then? Um, I think we should probably start winding it up. We're running out of time. I, I know we could talk all day. Where does that leave you? Because so many of us who struggle and wrestle with these things, and 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 I, I've heard from many people who've listened to my podcast. Um, you start going down that road, and it is simultaneously liberating and freeing, but it's also you give up community, you give up friendships, you give up family sometimes. What, is that, what has that looked like for you, and how have you navigated those waters? Oh, my gosh. You can't right. believe what's happened to us. <laughs> Holy cow. You know, it's like people that are deep in an abusive relationship, and they don't fully realize how bad it is until they try to escape it. We just had, oh, I won't even say their names to give them free publicity, but a blog site kind of got after us um, this week saying that, oh, Don and Wendy, you know, they must be influenced by Rob Bell. Like inclusion is all Rob Bell's idea. (laughs) You know, we, we didn't, um, Rob Bell's great, but he didn't. He isn't even in our story of how the the thing that makes people maddest is that we figured this out for ourselves from scripture. That's what makes people really mad. It's not that we were watching Oprah night and day. It's not <laughs> that we became new age. It's not that we suddenly got into sin that we wanted to hide. So. We just read scripture, and where does it leave us? Uh, we we aren't we aren't searching for a new structure because we wanted to get rid of both the wine and the wine skin, you know. Yeah, yeah. We have to be you have to be careful that you don't get sucked up into some some other new structure simply because it's different than the one you left. Yeah, like, but but uh, what it comes down to for me is my. <laughs> Uh, I can get a lot of good stuff from reading uh, what other people have 
written. But when it comes down to it, I have to get still. Well, not necessarily get still, but God just has to have grace on me and show me and mm. speak to me. And if I ask to, he seems to do that. Mm. It's amazing how that works. <laughs> but uh, you can't you can't get it from a book. It doesn't happen that way. If you're reading a book and it happens, God can make it happen when you're reading, of course. But like that experience I had when I was 28 changed my life. See, that's, that's what Paul the Apostle always went back to. He would, he would talk about that. Like in uh, Galatians, when he, when he opens it uh, and starts to tell his personal story and says, when it pleased God to reveal his son in me. Now, see, that's, that's what happened to me. That really began my story. And all of our stories will begin when God interacts with us, and God interacts yeah. with every one of us. Mm. Yeah, it's not, I've been so disappointed because people are like, yeah, I'm deconstructed now instead of being politically to the right, I'm politically to the left. And it's like, oh, brother, just another box of, <laughs> right. of indoctrination and hate. That doesn't sound like deconstruction to me. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, we have a tendency as human beings to to want to be in a tribe, and so we get rid of one tribe and then we go to another. And I and I always, I'm always reminded that um, you know if you are have a tendency to be dogmatic and and mean. And and you are addicted to certainty on one side. There's a good chance that your tendency is to do that on the other. You know, I hear f- former fundamentalists who say, who former fundamentalists who say, I hate those fundamentalists. I'm like, oh, you've done the same thing. You're no different. Now you've just kind of swung from one side to the other. And I think what what God, the divine, uh, the universe, whatever you want to call it, is trying to teach us that. There is this greater thing called love, uh, and there's this thing called wisdom, and there's this thing called kindness and goodness and joy and peace. And in, and in the Christian tradition, we call it the fruit of the Spirit um, that's, that's desiring to be produced in each one of us. And that's how I yeah. think you know if you are walking in truth, walking in revelation, walking in, um, you know, whatever you want to call it in Taoism that has a word for it and in other faiths and Buddhism, uh, is it producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control? These are things that are of the Christ. These are things that are of God. Uh, and if it's producing that in you, um, that's where you need to be digging further. And if it's not producing that in you, I say run from it. No matter what it's labeled or what it looks like, uh, it 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 doesn't it doesn't it's not serving for you what it needs to serve. Um, I really believe that, and I think there's the freedom in that. There's the truth in that. Um, and it our our journeys look very different. Uh, and I just want to thank you for sharing your journey and unpacking some of what you've been through. I know it hasn't always been easy, but um, how can people connect with you? How Are you still doing music? And if so, where can people find that? Is there a website? Is there an email address? How, how can people connect with you if they want to connect? Um, you can find Don at DonFrancisco.com and also on Facebook, Don Francisco. Um, and you can find me on Facebook and also at Love Heretic on Facebook, which is just this discussion that we're having with several thousand people who, <laughs> who, who, their stories are amazingly similar. And, um, and then I will have WendyFrancisco.com up shortly. Can you think of any other? No, that pretty much covers it. I think, uh, my, uh, Facebook page is probably... Uh, the best way if you want to know what I'm thinking. Uh, if you want to order uh, CDs, though, the nonfrancisco.com is the best. Yeah, and, thanks. Thanks for asking that. Yeah, absolutely. And for having us. 
Yeah, and I I want to thank you for being a model of uh, of a couple that are married that are going through um, faith journeys and waves and and tornadoes and and peace and calm and all the things that that goes through and and weathering it in a way that's um, accessible and extremely encouraging. So thank you for being transparent. Thank you for being honest. I know that Don, uh, especially for you, for someone who's had you know that level of kind of public uh, um, notoriety and who may still kind of make a living off that, there's a tendency to kind of be like, well, I'm not going to talk about this too much. I don't want to lose uh, anything. And yet, uh, I thank you for being honest. I think that goes a long way, and people will really appreciate seeing that side of you, and, and you too, Wendy. Um, that's just amazing. So thank you, thank you for that. I hope a, a lot of my listeners are encouraged, um, and if they have the same questions, I, I hope that they reach out to you as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Bob. All right. Talk to you guys soon. Bye-bye.